Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Strictly Stocks, a podcast by the Market Minute. This is the only podcast that strictly gives you in-depth stock analysis and nothing else. I'm your host, Logan Colhoun, and today I'll be talking about the furniture company LoveSack, trading under the ticker L-O-V-E, or Love, and how they could be a good investment right now. Yeah, this is the company that sells those huge bean bags, but did you know those bean bags only make up 10% of their sales? Yeah, those beanbags will make up 10% of their sales. But before we get into what makes up the other 90% of their sales, here's a really quick message from our sponsor. So who is Lovesack? Lovesack is the furniture company that is known for selling those giant beanbag furniture items. They operate 162 retail locations in 40 U.S. states, and they have three different product lines. One is their sectionals, uh, number two is sacks, and number three is accessories. And we'll get into all those later. Um, but how are they differentiated from other furniture companies? And they're differentiated in a lot of different ways. And number one is they're direct-to-consumer, one-to-two-day shipping. Um, and while the industry is notorious for its long shipping times, they have a differentiating factor there. Um, they have inventory light showrooms, and they are able to move their inventory very quickly, um, as well as their omnichannel experience, where they have a lot of digital sales uh, coming in at about over 20%. Um, they have highly engaged and loyal customers. Um, while most furniture shoppers are simply just shopping for a commodity, um, Lovesack's customers are highly engaged and very loyal, and we'll get into the lifetime value of their customers in a minute. And lastly, they have patent-protected uh, sectionals, um, which are super cool, and we'll get into those later as well. Now, looking at the market that Lovesack is going after, uh, furniture expenditures in the U.S. in 2021 were $148 billion, expected to grow at a 5% CAGR through 2025. Um, and then diving down a little bit deeper, the couch seating and chair market is a $42 billion market, which Lovesack currently only has a 1.2% market share. So they have a lot of room to grow here. Um, and a little, little quote by Peter Lynch, uh, moderately fast growers, 20 to 25%, and non-growth industries are ideal investments, and I think that's what we have here with Lovesack. Now, looking at Lovesack sales, they're divided into three different um, channels. They have their showrooms, which are their actual retail locations, um, their e-commerce uh, channel, and then also other, and this is going to be like pop-up shops in Best Buy or their pop-up shops at Costco. So these are sort of just random little pop-up shops that they have on other people, other companies' websites and other companies' retail locations. Um, so back in 2018, uh, their online sales only made up 20% of their total sales. And now in 2021, it made up a total of 30%. So you can see they're um, growing in their online sales and their showrooms made up 60% of their sales and other only 9.8% in 2021. And now for actual products, like I said at the beginning of this, their actual beanbags, or what they call sacks, only make up 10% of their revenue, while 88% of their revenue comes from their sectionals. Now, sectionals are essentially just sectionals, but they're built with side and base pieces, and these are purchased as a side and a base piece, and they can be configured into thousands of different combinations. And with these, you can make chairs, love seats, sofas, sectionals, beds, or basically whatever you want. And that's what's patent protected, and that's what's really unique about Lovesack. 
Now they also have embedded speakers, outlets, and wireless charging for the tech-savvy furniture shoppers. And lastly, 1.8% of their sales comes from what they call accessories, and this is stuff like blankets, drink holders, seat tables, and pillows. Now I mentioned at the very beginning that customer loyalty was a big part of Lovesack's business model, and I'm going to get into that here. So their target customer is a 25 to 45 year old with household income greater than 100,000. Now, households with higher income generally purchase more furniture. And they're also going to be more resilient in the economic downturn and will continue to buy furniture. Now, usually customer lifetime value and customer acquisition costs, those are mainly looked at in software, uh, SaaS businesses, software as a service, where they have reoccurring revenues. However, Lovesack uses these metrics because the customers are so loyal that they continue to come in that they can actually project a lifetime value of a customer. So customer lifetime value is $2,840, while the customer acquisition costs for their customers are only $549. So that means every time a customer comes into their stores, um, throughout the lifetime of that customer, they're going to make about $3,000 from them, and it only costs $500 in marketing to get them in the stores. So that means they have a lifetime value to customer acquisition cost ratio of 5.2. Now, usually a 3x ratio there is usually viewed upon pretty good. So they have a really strong lifetime value to customer acquisition cost ratio here. Um, and in addition to that, 41.6% of their transactions in 2021 were repeat customers. I mean, that's, that's an astonishing amount. 42% of their transactions were from repeat customers uh, as a furniture store. So now you hopefully have a pretty good idea of who Lovesack is and how they're differentiated from other furniture businesses. And now I want to get into the good stuff, some hardcore financials. Um, so starting with some ratios, they have a 10% return on invested capital and a pretty, pretty strong 34% return on equity. Um, now what's really crazy is keep in mind this is a furniture business. Uh, they have a three-year revenue compounded annual growth rate of 45%. That is massive growth. Um, they broke profitability in 2020, so quite recently. Um, and going back to that uh, growth, that their strong sales growth has been driven by, um, one, an increase in showrooms. So in 2021, they opened 28 new showrooms. Um, and then in 2022, this year, they plan on opening 25 more. And in Q1, they already opened 11 more. Um, and the average payback on one of those showrooms is less than two years. So they have an increase in showrooms, but also an incredible uh, same store sales growth of 40%. So not only are they opening new stores, but those individual stores are also um, increasing their sales, also driven by their increase in online sales. Um, they're currently sitting at 8.4% net margins. And like I said, they just broke profitability in 2020. So we'll continue to see that margin growth over the coming years um, to maybe 15 or 20%, you know, in five or five or six years. And we'll also continue to see double digit revenue growth. So what we're going to see is we're going to see expansions in their margins and also double digit revenue growth, which is really, really going to drive up their EPS. Now, looking at their valuation, which is obviously very important, they're down about 58% from their all-time high about a year ago. They're currently trading at a 13.6 price to earnings and a 9.5 EV to EBITDA. Um, and I would look at historical EV to EBITDA, but like I said, they just broke profit profitability recently in 2020. Um, so we can look at their historical EV to revenue or enterprise value to sales. 
Um, so their historical valuation here is 1.9 enterprise value to sales, and their current valuation is only 1.2. Um, so obviously they're about you know 40% undervalued there, looking at their historical EV to sales. And when they when they did break profitability in 2020, they were trading at over a hundred times uh, enterprise value to EBITDA, and they've slowly come down to where they are at 9.5. Now moving on to our discounted cash flow model. So we projected out revenue at the top line. We actually went lower than management's guidance for 2022. They were projecting about 30% revenue growth. We put it down to 25. And then in 2023 and 2024, we put 20% revenue growth. And then for 2025, 15% and 2026, 10%. So these are conservative relative to analysts and management's guidance. Um, we then had EBITDA margins at 11% and then grew them out to 15% along the forecast period. Uh, we left the income tax rate at 25%. Um, we added up our free cash flows. Um, we used an exit multiple of 10, our EV to EBITDA of 10, which is where they're trading at now, which is really conservative given how much they've pulled back recently. Um, and that came to a share price of $68.51. Uh, $68.51. Now that's roughly a 75% upside from where they're sitting at now. Um, and that's with that's with a 15% discount rate. Um, so that's fairly conservative and it's still a 75% upside. And as we do in all of the episodes, I just threw out their number out there, $68.51. And now I want to compare that to analyst estimates. So we looked at six analyst estimates. And from these estimates, the lowest estimate was $60. So ours was on the low end and the high was 130, putting the median at 92 and a half and the mean at 94.83. So our discounted cash flow actually put us on the lower end of analyst estimates and the upside to the analyst median is 239%. As always, don't listen to analysts too much. They're generally wrong. I think our 75% upside is much more accurate than a 240% upside as the median analyst says. Um, and now I want to look at risks because no good analysis is good without the risks. So first one is the furniture industry is highly cyclical. And given the current macroeconomic landscape, a decrease in discretionary spending could definitely hurt Lovesack's top line. And we have seen two negative quarters of GDP growth. Um, so that does look imminent. Um, but like I said at the beginning, their target customer are consumers with over $100,000 in household income. So that might make them a little bit more resilient to a possible recession. Or are we in a recession now? Who knows? Um, and even a bigger risk, I think, here is that shareholders have been diluted uh, in the past couple of years in order to fund Lovesack's massive growth. Um, and if that continues, it could definitely hurt shareholder value. So I do think that is the biggest risk here. And just to be thorough, we actually did another discounted cash flow where we projected the shares outstanding would increase by 50% um, at the end of the forecast period, which could in fact be a possibility. You know, hopefully management doesn't do that, but it is possible. Um, and it gave us a share price of $46, which is a 20% upside from the current share price. So even with some share dilution, there appears to be a margin of safety here, but it's definitely something to look out for uh, if you do invest in Lovesack. Now, if I could finish this analysis in three bullet points, I would say Lovesack is a company with a differentiated business model and a competitive advantage. 
a 13 PE ratio, and a 45% compounded annual growth rate over the past three years. That sounds like a good bargain if you ask me. So now that is basically going to sum up our analysis for this episode. I hope you guys learned something new or at the bare minimum found this episode interesting or at least entertaining. If you did, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. If you want to request a company for an episode or just want to contact us, you can reach us on Instagram at the underscore market underscore minute. Also, make sure to visit our website, www.themarketminute.co, to subscribe to our free newsletter. Once again, I'm your host, Logan Calhoun. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, happy investing.